Our scripture this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little, You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. 
No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a tremendous mercy it is that we were able to hear the word of the Lord and that we get to read it in front of us and then I get to preach it. It's a tremendous privilege and mercy from God. Uh, we are convinced that the scripture is inspired and authoritative for us and that we don't need to come up with a special uh, sermon series to make it interesting. Right? I mean, did you hear the words that we just read? Um, there's plenty here to keep us occupied and to draw our attention. One time while I was in college, uh, I was tired of going to basketball games and arriving really early and then getting way high up in the seats because you have to go even earlier to get lower for student seating. And so one time what we did, we started scouting out some of the season ticket areas, good chair backs, lower lower in the, the stadium so that we could, you know, kind of find one that may not be there as often so that we could make sure we kind of navigate to that place the next time. So we, we even timed it out. We figured out when do the season ticket holders show up and when can we go down there strategically so that we know that they're probably not there this time or they're, they're going to be there and we'll have to find another spot. So we did this. Uh, we were hoping when we got to these, these seats that the, the, the season ticket holder didn't actually show up. And if they did, it was going to be uh, a few awkward moments where we'd have to be like, do the walk of shame, like, oh yeah, that's right, you do have this ticket, I do not belong here, I need to move. Uh, we didn't have to do that, I got to see a great game there, triple overtime uh, victory for the Cowboys over Kevin Durant's team back in the day, so take that. Um, and we didn't face any awkward moments. It was perfectly timed and we well placed within the seats. Well, Moses has been preaching a, a sermon of, of, of great impact for the people of Israel. They're on the precipice, the doorstep to the promised land, and he's preparing them for where they're going. And they're not going into unoccupied land. And this has major ramifications for how he's going to instruct them and what they need to do when they get there. There are going to be some awkward moments ahead because they're coming into the seats and the seat is occupied. Confrontations and conflicts are on the horizon. And so Moses, he's instructing Israel on how to proceed as a chosen holy people in an occupied land. And he lays down here in chapter 7, at least in part, what Israel is to do uh, as this chosen people in the promised land when they get there because it's occupied. And he does this and he, he states all these things and you can just sense this confidence. Again, he uses these words, when. He, he's confident that the destination is actually in front of them, that they're going to make it there. And so he starts with speaking of, in chapter 7, seven nations as occupying the promised land, and he kind of sizes them up in verse 1. He's going to bring you into this land. Here are these seven nations that he's going to clear before you. And guess what he says about them? This little detail, they are more numerous and they're mightier than you are. I mean, it's seven on one, and it's not a fair fight, is it? Seven on one. Each of these nations outgun 
outman, they're more equipped, they're in better positions, they probably have a little bit more strategy built up because they're in a better position. I mean, it's not a fair fight. But Moses, he does affirm that it's not a fair fight, but not in the way that you think, right? He says, yeah, it's not a fair fight, but it's not because of numbers, it's not because of military might or strength or strategy or the advantages that they have in the land. It's not a fair fight because Israel is being brought into this land by God. And that means that it's seven on one and it's not fair because the one has the Lord on their side and he's going to clear the land in front of them. There's a win attached to this. Even though there's seven nations in the promised land that are more numerous and mightier than they are, he says, well, when he brings you into the land because it's going to happen. I mean, this is the God who created. He spoke and out of his words came a universe. Moses knows this. Israel should know this. This is the God who brought them out of Egypt. And so when the Lord is for you and it's that Lord who could be against you, seven nations more mightier and more numerous than you, not a fair fight. And isn't it like the Lord to work through the less numerous and the less mighty? To pick kind of the small things? This is what he says in 1 Corinthians Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. I mean, do you fit into any of those descriptions, or do you just you feel like, yeah, weak, that's me? And here's the good news is that if you're weak and you're not mighty and, and you're small in, in, in all sorts of different ways, like you're, you're not significant on the world scales, you, you have a place where you can belong. You, you have this, this God who, who's not concerned if you're mighty and great. He's mighty and great. He doesn't need you to be, but he makes a place for you to belong and invites you to live life with him. Normal people and small churches and just a few getting together to pray, they can be used greatly for the sake of God's cause on this earth because this is God's way. This is how he does it. And so if you're one of those people, like keep at it because God uses that kind of stuff all the time. And why does he do it? Paul says in, in verse 29, so that no human might boast in the presence of God, using the, the weak to shame the strong and so forth, magnifies his glory, it magnifies his, his power, it magnifies his name for the good of his people too, that they would be a people who wouldn't boast and have pride in themselves, but they'd have joy by finding their strength and everything they need in their Lord. And this is exactly what happens with Israel. This is what Moses is pointing to. He's going to use you, a weak, less numerous, less strong nation, to overcome the strong for the sake of his name. This is what God has already done for them when he delivered Israel out of Egypt. He, he brought them to the Red Sea, and, and they get across the sea on dry ground and they look back and Egypt has been destroyed. They've been covered over. The seas that had been parted and were returned and the Egyptian army was covered over. And listen to their response. This is the song at the sea in, in Exodus chapter 15. Moses and the people of Israel, they sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And it's that kind of victory that Moses is saying is going to be worked for them on their behalf again when they get into the promised land. That kind of victory that will magnify the greatness of their God, not their numbers or their military might. It will magnify God's power 
and show the world who he is and how powerful he is. So when they take possession, when they take possession of the promised land from these seven nations and the Lord clears the way, this is what's to follow, Moses says. And listen to these instructions, starting in verse 2. It says, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, notice the certainty, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. God has made a covenant with Israel, and in that covenant he's made with them, there's no room for any other covenants. No compromise with the nations. And indeed, the, the covenant he's made with them, what it calls for initially when they come into the promised land is destruction. Verse 16 says the same kind of idea, and he says, And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. And verse 2 says, Show them no mercy. Verse 16 says, You shouldn't pity them. Those are a bit jarring, aren't they? And there's not much I can do to actually soften those. Make it a little bit more palatable to our common age. All people, when they come to the scripture, we're going to have to come to terms with passages like this. The difficulty of these texts of verse 2 and verse 16, these type texts are, are all over. I mean, you might remember the flood. I mean, yes, we like to use it as decorations in nurseries, but it was a time of judgment. <laughs> horrific. The Exodus, the Egyptians, they faced the plagues of God. We, we kind of read it from the other side, but think about it from the Egyptian side. All the firstborn in their land died. Their army goes out to the sea and they're covered over. In chapters 3 and 4 of Deuteronomy, we, remember we went, we're not in the promised land yet, they were making their way to the promised land and they destroyed nations in front of them. Og and Sihon, their kingdoms destroyed. And so where do we begin when we think about texts like that? I think the place to begin is actually the place that is central in chapter 7, central to uh, all the ways that we read the scripture. It's in verse 9. Verse 9, here's what Moses says. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will, will repay him to his face. Verse 9 is the, the heart of chapter 7. It's the heart of Moses' instructions throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It's the heart of verse 2's command. That is, if we don't understand and know that the Lord God is God, then no explanation that I could give you or that anybody could give you about verse 2 and verse 16 and about the flood and about the exodus will matter. In verse 9, he, he says something similar to how he started the Ten Commandments. 
It's like the preamble to those. It's foundational to this chapter. It's foundational to texts like these. It's foundational to all of the scripture. The Lord is God. I do believe that that statement cannot be overstated in its importance. Because if he is God, if the Lord is God, then his significance, all that he says, all that he does is of the utmost importance. If the Lord is God, then he is over all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The people and those dwell in. They're his to use or disuse at his disposal. He's God. If he is God, then none can, according to Daniel, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? If he is God, then he is the potter and, and people and his universe and his creation is the clay. And they shouldn't say back to the potter, why are you making me like this? If he is God, then he can do what he pleases, command as he pleases, and he actually owes no explanation to anyone ever. In fact, the opposite is true. If he is God, then everyone and all things owe everything to him. And so God is the one who, here in chapter 7, he's the one that brings them into the promised land. He's the one that clears the promised land. He's the one who's going to bring destruction. Destruction is empowered and achieved by God through Israel. He's doing this. And so in other words, God is on the hook for all these words. And he's not embarrassed about it at all. He's not hiding it. He actually repeats it. He's fine with being on the hook for these words. In other words, I think that God can handle it. He's not hiding the words, show no mercy or give them no pity. And so we come to texts like this and we say, if the Lord is God, then even our questions and our confusions that follow from texts like this can, can be directed to him. He can handle it. And they can be submitted under him. He's God. So before we deal with verse 2 and verse 16 and those words, we need to deal with verse 9. Because all else is going to flow and follow that. If the Lord God is God, then everything else can fall into place. You need to start with asking, do I believe that the Lord God is God? That the God of the Bible, that the God that the scripture reveals to us, I believe that that God is God. If not, here's what I would commend to you, reading this word that would reveal him to you. Open up the scripture and, and read it. I would commend to you other people who, who are Christians, who have this genuine faith. Ask them about their lives and, and why they do the things they do and why they have the attitudes that they have. I would commend to you Christian community, like our community, our love for one another, the things that we're singing and saying and doing, like they, they, they are testifying to something, that the Lord is God. I would commend those things to you. If you do believe that the Lord is God, then we can go to passages like verse 2 and verse 16, and we can deal with them rightly. These passages have a place. And so here's what we need to do with them. First, when we come to them, there's a sense that this is beyond our full understanding. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are, are greater, higher than our thoughts. We, we can't understand things fully. Like, oh, what are his purposes here, and why is he doing what he's doing? Like, well, we don't know all the way. Paul, in, in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, says, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. When we look at Deuteronomy 7, we could think, man, how unsearchable are these judgments and inscrutable these ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Right? Not us, right? And so what this does when we, we think about the, the wisdom and the judgments of God that are beyond us, that are his prerogative because he is God and we are not, 
What it should do for us is it should implant in us this sense of, of joyful humility that ends with this, this doxology, this praise to God. That's where Paul goes with it in chapter 11 of Romans. He ends in verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It ends with doxology, like we are not the ones that can tell him what to do. He is God, and, and his judgments and his wisdom are beyond us. And so we come to him with joyful submission and humility to say, to you be the glory. Verse 2, type texts of Deuteronomy 7 aren't likely to be exhaustively understood or explained here below because they're God's ways and judgments that are beyond us. So we can come to this text and we can have some joyful honesty and say, this text is hard. And we probably don't understand it fully. Now, the, the difficulty, I think, with verse 2 probably struck you when you read it was that phrase, devote them to complete destruction and show them no mercy. We've already read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31, this is what it says about God. The Lord your God is a merciful God. And yet here he commands his people, show them no mercy. And so there's some difficulty in that and how to work that out. Is God inconsistent? Is he two-faced? Is he, is he saying he's merciful here, but over here he's really not merciful? I think we need to remember first what mercy is. Mercy is God taking human misery to heart and, and giving relief for that. It, it is granting something that is not deserved. It is non-justice. Now, not injustice, non-justice. Justice is getting what you deserve, and mercy is non-justice. By definition, God is never obligated to be merciful. By definition. You, you can't demand mercy. He doesn't owe mercy. By definition, it's him giving what they don't actually deserve. And so it can never be demanded or owed. Mercy is voluntary, freely given. So to the nations, when we come to them and we think about how can we show them no mercy, let's, let's remember that, that destruction is actually what is owed to these nations, not mercy. Justice is what is owed to these nations, not mercy. Let's not confuse what mercy actually is. But once we know that, we still need to ask, well, is God merciful or not? I think the answer is overwhelmingly yes. Though never obligated to be merciful, and though mercy is never obligated or owed to anyone, the Bible overwhelmingly shows God to be a merciful God. In verse 2, this command itself to devote to destruction, it's limited. It's a limited amount of time. In other words, this command has an expiration date. This is an ongoing command for all people of all times has an expiration date. Listen to what verse 1 says. It's for when the Lord brings you into the land. It, it's going to end. Once you come into the land, you fulfill this command, it's done. And notice that it's a limited amount of space and land. It, it's not the whole world that he says to do this to, but the promised land. And so in other words, it's not some sort of greedy invasion. It's not a bloodthirsty pillaging. It's not indiscriminate. God has given the, the confines of what this should look like. It, it goes no further. It's God-governed command, and he has limited it carefully. 
But another thing we need to notice is that when we come into this promised land and we have this devotion and show them no mercy and, and this destruction that's going on here, we have to remember that this was not God's original design. Remember God's original design? He created man and he placed him in the garden. His original design was for perfect communion between God and man in this place that he'd created for them to know and love him and meet him in. God was to be known and loved and he was to have fellowship with man. That was the design. And guess what happened to that design? Man rejected it. Cast it aside. Gave God the stiff arm. Wanted something else. And since that time, since sin entered into creation, the good design of God for man has been spurned and rejected by every single person since. So sin enters, and now this good design has now been corrupted. These nations who were, as you've read this text, these nations are clearly given over to idolatry. They are not those who are trying to follow after God and know him. They have fallen far from God's design. They're not innocent bystanders. They're idolaters who've rejected God. They're not promoting neighbor love. Exalting in God, giving him thanks for all that he's given. They're sacrificing to idols in horrific ways. And so every second that God allows these nations, or any sinner for that matter, every second, every breath that God allows is mercy. But, but God has done more than just let them live for a, a few seconds. Right? God has Revealed himself in creation, right? Creation itself declares the glory of God. It, it shows and reveals his eternal power, his divine nature, so that who God is, that something about God can be perceived in the things that have been created. They can look around and see that. But further, thinking about the context of Deuteronomy, God had revealed himself not just in creation, but also in redemption. We're, we're not too far away from, from the Exodus, Right? And what did God do in the Exodus? He had rescued his people. He would rescued Israel from Egypt. And, and in Exodus, God, in the book of Exodus, God gave a specific purpose for rescuing Israel the way he rescued them. Look in Exodus chapter 9. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 15, this is what Moses is to say to Pharaoh. For by now... I could have put my, out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Verse 16, but for, the, for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's redemption of Israel was about more than just freeing them from slavery to the Egyptians. It was in part... To make God's name, his name, known in all of the earth. Like Canaan. Like the promised land. And Israel, as they're moving from Egypt out into the promised land through the wilderness, you know what happens to the nations. They're, they're put in this sense of dread because of Israel because they'd heard about what had happened. The news had gotten around. So that when Joshua starts to enter into the promised land when they start to the conquest starting in the book of Joshua listen to what he finds Joshua chapter 2 they're approaching uh, the city of Jericho 
And before the men lay down, she, her name is Rahab, came up to them on the roof. This is the Israelite spies. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to, the, to Sihon and Og, whom you have devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What does Joshua find when he goes into the promised land? What do these spies hear from, from a Canaanite? You hear verse 9. The Lord your God, he's the actual God. She confesses verse 9 to them, and then she's going to ask them for mercy. When you come, save me, remember me, don't put me to death. We know that the, your God is the actual God. We've, we've heard of him. That was what God had intended. God is merciful, and guess what? Rahab and her family, they're saved. And merciful beyond even that. And Rahab becomes part of the kingly line of David, part of the line that leads to the Savior. She is one that's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. God is merciful. All the nations could have done the same. They had heard what God had done in Egypt. They had heard what God had done at the Red Sea. They could have and they should have done the same. They could know, as Rahab knew, that the Lord God is God. But they rejected it. They gave it the stiff arm. And even in that, God was patient. This destruction that's coming to these nations in Deuteronomy has been a long time coming. In Genesis chapter 15, here's what we read. As for you, speaking to Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites, those in the promised land, is not yet complete. In other words, God had verse 14, I'm going to bring judgment on this nation. That there's going to, you're going to have great possessions, but I'm going to bring judgment, and their iniquity is going to come, or is going to bring about this judgment, and it's not yet complete. And when they go into the promised land, God has said, this is complete. In other words, Genesis chapter 15, years before Deuteronomy comes along, the sin of the nations is in God's sight. But he'd waited. He waited 400 years. He was patient and merciful to have allowed them to continue living in the land that he promised to give to Abraham and his offspring. And when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they walked to the edge of the promised land, in a way, God was patient by giving them 40 more years. It wasn't on their account, but kind of on the account of Israel. But 40 plus 400 to put it another way, God had long endured the rebellion of these nations against him. He had long endured their rejection of him as the one true living God. And so before coming to these texts like verse 2 and verse 16 and thinking, well, I thought God was merciful. Let's remember how merciful he's already been. Because God is merciful. And when we come to verse 2 and we, we find that it's, it's difficult, we know that it's difficult, but it's not unjust. 
They deserved judgment and wrath. They deserved the destruction that was coming. God isn't inconsistent with his character or nature. He's long held back the judgment that they deserved, long held back his justice because he is merciful. That these nations are marked for destruction is hard to kind of swallow, isn't it? But let's remember how they got here. It was by sin. We're, we're far east of Eden at this point, point, right? Sin brought them here. And this shows how far these nations have come since creation that now God would have to send in his people and say, you need to devote them to destruction. That's how far we've come from the good design that God had given in the beginning. Sin has brought this about. But verse 2, verse 2 through 5, and all the following instructions aren't all about destruction. And, and I think thinking about it from the flip side is actually a little bit easier to understand and see God's love and mercy. Because notice the reason for the command to devote them to destruction. It's one command. There's more commands or more reasons for this that we'll find in, verse nine, or in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy that we won't touch much today. Chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, there's more coming. But here's one of the reasons is to keep Israel from falling to protect them from idolatry, to purify them. In other words, one of the reasons for this is their salvation, their deliverance, that they might be saved in the land. Because we know that if they give their lives over to idolatry, which they're inclined to with their sinful hearts, then that is going to lead to destruction too. Like sin leads to death. And so one of the reasons that God has for the destruction of these seven nations is for the salvation of Israel. It wasn't about ethnicity or superiority. It was about idolatry. It was about theology, who we trust as the one true living God. So the motive for this destruction is theological. God is working in this command for his people's good, to keep them from idolatry that would lead to their certain death. And so, in a sense, God commands destruction to keep them from destruction. And yes, there's some drastic commands here. Devote them to destruction. Don't intermarry. Throw down their altars. Burn them up. Like, make sure you slash them down really, really well. Those are drastic measures. But it's not too drastic if Israel is to be spared. Do you remember Exodus chapter 32? Moses is on the mountain. How quickly they turned to something else. Do you remember how Joshua, he goes into the land. They're, they're just fresh off Moses' sermon. They go into the land and ache in sin and greed and idolatry. Do you remember some of the trials that they faced in the wilderness where manna was fresh on their lips when they're complaining about this God that they don't actually believe in? Like these are drastic measures, but we know that they need drastic measures. And that this God that they have who's made covenant with them, he's a jealous God. In other words, he intensely loves Israel. And love does a couple different things. It defends what is right and protects from what is wrong. And so part of this command is a command of love to say, I'm going to defend what is good and right. Worship of the one true living God, love for the one true living God, and I'm going to fight against what is wrong, idolatry, sin, and that's what God, God is doing in these commands. God commands the destruction of seven nations, their idols and the altars, for the sake of his people because he loves them. So when we look at the picture of what God is commanding here in these instructions, here's what we're seeing. We're seeing this picture of this God who goes to great lengths for the sake of his people. Yeah, he puts to death by the sword here. 
But here's what we also know is that God won't always do that. The the time would come when God wouldn't send his people, but he'd send his son. The, The time would come that he would not go in to destroy, but go in to die. The time was going to come when he wouldn't take up a sword, but he'd take up a cross to protect and purify a people that could dwell with him forever. And so, yeah, we come to these passages, and they're they're difficult. Devote them through complete destruction. Show them no mercy. Have no pity on them. There's some difficulties in that. But we are those who are fortunate enough to be able to look back and read those passages in light of more. We need to see this God. This is a good, merciful God, a loving God. The God who would send his son to save a people, to protect a people, to purify the people, is the God you want to know. It's the God you want to be on his side. So why is it so important that Israel obey verses 2 through 5? Well, because God loves them. Because of who they are. It has a lot to do with the identity of Israel And that's where Moses is going to remind them next. He's going to remind them that they are a, they're not just any people, they're not just a nation, they're a particular people, a particular nation. Verse 6 says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He says of them, you're you're in an exclusive club. Why? Why? Because, verse 7 and 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people in the Lord that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They are people. Here's how the description of them. They're set apart. They are holy, chosen, a treasured possession. This should make them beam and be overwhelmed that their God, that the God who is God over all, would say these kinds of things of them and make them kind of brim with gratitude. Like God would say this about us, but it shouldn't lead them to pride. Why? Because of all the peoples of the earth, why are they the treasured possession of God? I love the explanation. It's so great, isn't it? It's easier to explain why they're not that. It's like, well, we know why you're not, and why you are not that treasured possession is something about you. It's not about who you are, that you're mighty, or that you're more numerous, or that you're great. God doesn't need Israel. God, he doesn't gain anything. Israel doesn't give God more standing. Israel adds nothing to God, and honestly, we know the story, right? Israel costs God. When we're looking at the equation, it's like, Yeah, they cost. So why in the world are they this treasured possession? Are they set apart? Are they holy? Are they chosen? Are they dearly loved by God? And the explanation is God loves you because he loves you. And there's such beauty and depth in that short little phrase. In this non-explanation, we have a really deep explanation. God loves you because he loves you. His love, in other words, for them, it wasn't earned. They didn't deserve it. It was freely, sovereignly, unconditionally bestowed. It flows from the heart of God, and it flows to them, directed right at them. He loves them because he loves them. His love couldn't have been earned. But notice that this love isn't abstract. is isn't just something in their minds. is isn't ethereal. It's love that doesn't just sound nice. It actually hit the ground and redeemed. He showed them this love. 
He doesn't just say, you're my treasured possession. Good luck in the world. You're my treasured possession. I'm going to work hard to make sure that you're taken care of and provided for. And when God works at something, he gets it accomplished, right? I'll redeem you from Egypt. I'll protect you. I'll take you into the land. I'll destroy them in front of you and clear it out its way. Like God is doing these things because he loves them. His love hits the ground for them and shows them, this is what I'm like. And the good news for us as we think about this love is that this is the same kind of love that's still at work. In the New Testament, we see this so clearly when God speaks about his people, the church. As God gushes forth with these great descriptors to his people here in Deuteronomy 7, so he does about his New Testament people, the church. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and listen to the words Uh, that that God says about his people, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. He's speaking to a church, speaking about a church. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, here's one word, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and things on earth. He's gushing about the church, inspired words of God. Or we could hear Peter. He, did you think of this verse when you thought about this, this passage in Deuteronomy 7, 1 Peter 2, 9? Here's what you are. You're a, a royal people, a, a chosen priesthood, a, a people for my own name, my own possession, a holy nation, not because you're awesome or numerous or really skilled or, or are so wise in the world. God loves you because he loves you. He is love, and so he pours out this love. I love, one Puritan says it this way, the only ground of God's love is his love. The only ground of God's love is his love. The ground of God's love is only and wholly in himself. There is neither portion nor proportion in us to draw his love. There is no love nor loveliness in us that could cause a beam of his love to shine upon us. And yet the, the scripture is overwhelmingly clear that the, the people of God are those who he bestows his love on. The beams are just radiantly pointed at his people. He loves them and he loves them because he loves God repeatedly calls the church, which is a mess so often, right, in the New Testament, It's a mess. And he repeatedly calls them, like, I guess he's making sure that we know that they're beloved. Calls them his beloved. Calls them holy. Calls them chosen. He describes them as his very body, his bride. I mean, he's just gushing with great adjectives to describe his people because he is loving. Again, this isn't love that's just abstract love that's just like, yeah, it's nice to talk about, but we never actually see it. No, this isn't abstract love. It's love that hit the ground and redeemed through thee, beloved, through his own son. With a mighty hand, he redeems from slavery to sin and death by taking death on himself and, and beating it. And so now, for all of us that are sitting here today, this, this love, we, we can get in on this love. And we get on, in on this love, we can be a part of this beloved bride, this holy and chosen people, by trusting in the beloved, in Jesus. Through him, we are the beloved. And it's because of this love that, that Israel can know God. 
And so we get to verses 9 and 10 of Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So being his holy, chosen, beloved people shouldn't lead them to passivity and inaction. Like quite the opposite, right? It's to be a people who love him and keep his commandments. And those ideas of loving and keeping are are so tightly tied in, in the scripture, especially in Deuteronomy. They go together so, so closely in Deuteronomy. And it's love and obedience that show that you know that the Lord God is God. And notice in these verses that there's no other option other than love and hate. There's, there's no neutrality ground. There's no neutral ground in the middle here. He, he's going to love if those who love and keep his commandments, and he's going to oppose those who hate him. To not respond to God and God's love with love and obedience in return is not to be just disinterested, but to reject God, to be at enmity with God. And those who reject God to their face are rejected by God. And notice how indiscriminate this is too. That's for Israel and for the nations. You reject God, he'll reject you to your face. But if you love and obey God, God will continue to show his steadfast love to you. So that, verse 11, you shall therefore be careful then to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you. Like, could he have built it in where there's even more care than to say, I'll oppose you to your face if you reject me? Like, that's a scary kind of warning. And so verse 11, like it brings this weight to it. Yeah, we're going to be careful to do these things that are commanded of us because of who God is and because of what he has shown to us. These are strong words from verses 9 and 10, and they are to persuade and convince Israel even further to obey God and to commit their lives to wholehearted love to God and wholehearted loyalty to God. And we're only 11 verses in. And because we want to get done with Deuteronomy at some point and not in 2024, (laughs) verses 12 through 26 are going to go a lot faster. Israel's future now is contingent upon their response to these commandments, the statutes and the rules. This is why it's so serious. They their future depends upon this. And, and Moses says this shouldn't bring dread or fear into their lives. It's not the wrong kind of fear, right? But it should motivate them to obedience because obeying God is good and it brings blessing. Look in verse 12. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love they swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. And then he goes on to explain this. In other words, if you do these things, you love God and keep his commands, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be fruitfulness in the land in terms of offspring, in terms of livestock and crops. There's going to be health. You're going to be in good health. You're not going to face the diseases that you saw in Egypt. Those were bad, right? You want to avoid those. There's blessing by obeying God, loving him, keeping his commands. He'll put those on the nations. There's blessing in the promised land that's before them, and it's attached to loving and keeping. And it's so clear that based upon his love for them and this repeated command that God say, please keep this, keep this, love me, keep this commandment. It's so clear that God wants this. He wants to bless them. He wants this to overflow to them, that they'd be fruitful in the land. He doesn't want them to go the way of Egypt or the nations. And so he says, don't serve their gods. You don't want to go that direction. 
Israel is instead to be a people that remembers the diseases that were in Egypt and avoid that by faithfulness and loyalty to God. They should remember Egypt's fate and not fear the nations. This is what he says in verse 17. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I am, how can I dispossess them? He's he's thinking about questions ahead of time. He's anticipating the fears and the temptations that the people are going to have when they come into the land. And I love this. He gives an answer in advance. He's not conjuring something like, you don't have to come up with something when you get there and try to figure out something about God once you're there. I got the answer for you. You already know it. Look at verse 18. You should not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. He says, you remember the redemption that you had from Egypt? Look back and think about what kind of arm was stuck out to have done that for you. It's a mighty arm. It's a good hand. Don't be afraid of them. They don't have a God like that. Remember what happened to them and their gods? They all fell. So God's choosing and redeeming of Israel gives them their identity. It shows them who he is, his nature, and what he's like, and it pushes them forward in a way that says, you're going to be taken care of because this is your God. He's shown himself both squarely to be on their side, or rather they're on his side, right? And one who is mighty to deliver. And so no matter what's ahead, he is the one that they can look to. In verse 20, he even goes further and says, Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. Hornets, God's sending hornets now. Like God is bending creation in service to his people's cause in the promised land? Like, there's nowhere to hide. That's what he's saying. Like, you, if God is going to destroy you, if he's the Lord God, and he is your God, then, then he's going to take care of things. Like, they're hiding, you can't find them, but hornets can find them. And God made those hornets, and he knows where they are. They're not hidden from him, and so hornets are going to be sent into the land. So on the flip side of that, on the other side of the hornets, the good side of the hornets, the Israel side of the hornets... They're assured that there's, there's also nowhere they can go that they're not protected by God. In verse 21, he, he assures them of his presence. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst. So when these hornets go out, don't be concerned that they're going to turn on you. I'm, I'm sending them out to protect you, to keep you. And because there's no place to hide, because God is present with his people, because his will is going to be accomplished in and through his people in the land that he is giving them, here's kind of the end, verse 25 and 26. The carved images of their gods, here's what you're going to do with them, burn them with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves. We're looking at you, Achan, and your family, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. Like it. Don't become like it, is what God's saying. I'm trying to keep you from destruction. Please listen to this instruction so that you don't go that way. He says, you shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. And so God, he lovingly warns, he lovingly commands, because he knows how easy it is for sinners to be ensnared by sin. And so yes, he calls for drastic action in the promised land, because he knows how quickly they can fall. And so they're to heed this warning. But listen, not only is this command and this warning repeated, like how many times has he already warned them not to 
fall into idolatry. How many times has he warned them and told them, keep my commandments, obey my word? He's told them several times, and he'll tell them several more times. But notice what's also right along this warning repeated over and over again in this chapter. There's a phrase you could, you could underline all through chapter 7. It's everywhere. The Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. It's all over, undergirding all of their living, all of their actions toward the nations internally, all the things that they do and don't do, all the ways that they're to treat idols and, and possessions, all that is to be undergirded by the Lord, their God. The core of their lives is to be that the Lord is their God, and they should live out their lives in line with that reality, that he is God alone, and so we're going to reject idols, we're not going to fear, we're not going to be greedy, we're not going to rely on silver or gold or possessions, we're going to rely on the one true living God because he's our God, the Lord is God. And so the heart of their living is that this repeated phrase should be all over their lives as it's all over chapter 7, that the Lord is God. That is the truth that they are to respond to so that they do some things and don't do some things and live their lives. And you know what? Just like Israel, there are, there are many other gods that, that could be served in this world, right? The options are almost endless when we think about it. They're everywhere. You could pick any God to serve. Whatever it is you're living your life for, that is your God. And just like Israel, there are all sorts of temptations for us to fear and, and give way to idolatry. They could grip our hearts and lead us astray. And the crucial question for us, as it is for them, is in verse 9. Do you know the Lord your God is God? Who is truly God? Because the answer to that is going to determine what you say, how you live. So is this phrase, the Lord your God, all over our lives? Is it stamped everywhere, like it's on this page in chapter 7? Does it ground and motivate our actions and our words? Is it the heart and the center of our lives and who we are and what we do? Is the Lord your God? If we know the Lord God, and that the Lord God, we know that he is God, then we have all that we need as sojourners in this land, so that we don't need to rely upon the silver and gold of the promised land, or turn to the idols of the nations. We have all we need. And while this doesn't likely mean that God is probably going to use hornets to help sustain and keep us, although we wish he would maybe at some time, we can still rely on him because we know that this is the God who's going to give us all that we need, not just because he was willing to go before the Israelites or even to send hornets into the land of those people who are hiding from this, but because he fought and won a far more ancient battle than that. He fought not for a place in Canaan, but for an eternal place in heaven for sinners. He fought not physical armies, but armies and rulers and authorities of another kind. And the scripture tells us that he put them to open shame. How did he do it? How did he triumph over them? By triumphing over them through his death and resurrection. This Lord, he is the Lord. He is God. Here's what the people can do now. We can look to him. We can remember him. We can rely on him. He's going to save us. He's going to keep us. He's going to keep on saving us and keep us all the way to the very end. One way, if you're part of his people, that you can proclaim that I know that the Lord God is God is through the Lord's Supper. 
where we take this meal and we're saying, Jesus came, the Lord came, and he faced these authorities and rulers. He faced death and he defeated them all. He put them to open shame. He's raised from the dead. He's now in heaven and he's going to come back one day and finally and fully finish what he started. The war in any and all sense is going to be finally ended and it's going to be with him triumphant. If you're his, part of his people, this meal's for you to proclaim that together. We proclaim and glory and exalt in that together. If you're not part of his people, Jesus has been offered to you. He's a, the one who came and died and defeated death has now standing and says, hey, would you come unto me and be saved? Follow me and be saved. Don't take this meal. Come to Jesus. Repent of sins and trust in the one true living God. This God, he is God. Let's submit our lives to him. Would you pray with me?